1: Hello, and welcome to the Gibliotech, the podcast that ventures through the valley of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leder, and I've seen the lot of them.
0: And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm diving into the Sea of Decay.
1: So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. We're back, Jake. We are back. Oh, it's so exciting to sit down with you.
0: Yeah, it's actually been a while since we've done just a normal episode like this.
1: I mean, we've been up and down the country, out there in the meat space. You've been crowd surfing the
0: hordes of fans at the festivals we've been at.
1: But now we're back where we truly belong, locked into a recording studio, talking about Studio Ghibli films. It's what we were born to do. So should we set up what this final miniseries... Well, we say final, but what this... Yeah, well I mean is. I
0: suppose in the filmography of Ghibli there's there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. We have uh, there are six films we haven't talked about that mm-hmm. they've made and that's what we need to talk about and then what do we do after?
1: Exactly. That's something we should deal with when we get to it maybe. <laughs> but these films are The ones that are left at the bottom of the bag. And there are some really exciting ones and hidden gems in there that we're going to come up with. And a couple of big hitters as well, including the film we're talking about today. But we're seeing many beginnings. We're seeing many returning characters from previous series. Uh, But also we're spilling out into what Miyazaki and Takahata did before they founded Studio Ghibli in the 80s. Yeah, and
0: it just means I've got a few more GIFs that people have been sending to mm-hmm. us that I can actually say, oh, that's what that film is. And uh, I, in particular, one today, there's a, I thought Porco Rosso was the man who could give you a great thumbs up GIF, but it turns out that's uh, that's Nausicaa as well.
1: Nausicaa, indeed. I should probably say, we've had a few comments in the past when I've, when I've mentioned this film on previous episode and I've called it Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and pronunciation of words related to Ghibli seems to be (laughs) an ongoing theme for this podcast I say I've said Nausicaea in the past because that's what I was taught at school the the Greek myth but yes in the film it's Naushka because that's how the Japanese people say it so that's how we're going to talk about it today and apologies if I've offended anyone's ears in the past with the way I've pronounced the word.
0: Yeah, um, but if you do want to complain to us more directly, exactly, we've yeah. finally, uh, albeit maybe 18 months late, <laughs> have set up a Twitter account for the Ghibliotech. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's just at Gibliotech if you want to keep in touch with
1: us. We'll be sharing content for, related to the podcast or not related at all ghibli news uh, we've had some good gifts so far yeah. w- one thing we did was we shared our leaderboard and jacob's ladder rankings which i think set a <laughs> set a little bit of a twitter fire yeah uh
0: i mean who's to say whether a 52 to 48 percent vote is really something to read into that much but i won yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah Let's call for a vote on that, shall yeah, we? Exactly. Maybe try again in three years. Second referendum. <laughs> <laughs> and um well something that we will be looking for people to get in touch with us on Twitter about is some pretty exciting news that we are heading to Japan. We are heading yeah. to the Studio Ghibli Museum. Mm-hmm. We'll be recording some new episodes of the podcast when we're out there for twenty twenty and we'd love to get our listeners' recommendations of things we should be doing whilst we're out there.
1: It's finally happened, hasn't it? It feels like the culmination of all this work over the last year and a half. Um, We'll be there the final week of November, uh, returning on the 30th. Um, And I've never been. I can't wait. You've never been. We're going with producer Steph and Harold as well. And please do tweet us your recommendations. Of course, it's going to be a very Ghibli-heavy week, We have a few things lined up already, such as the museum. But it seems that everyone comes back from Tokyo with a list as long as your arm of recommendations and then a list as long as your other arm of things they didn't get to do. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've already bought a little bit of red ribbon for a uh, photo recreation on a certain set of steps from another film. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) We're going to be so nerdy out there, aren't we? (laughs) So let us know what recommendations you have or comments about the podcast we'd love actually engaging directly with with our listeners with the way we record these podcasts are in batches so we don't have time often to to respond to to listener feedback but what the great thing about twitter is we can do that so let us know what you think at ghibliotech
0: Mm. on twitter but we must now move on to the film we're talking about today
1: Naushka of the Valley of the Wind is set in the distant future in the aftermath of a global war that has destroyed human civilization. Only small pockets of people have survived and one such place is the Valley of the Wind, where Princess Naushka lives. A toxic jungle, a sea of decay, surrounds her valley, expelling deadly poisonous gas and is guarded by giant mutated insects. Although ocean breezes protect the valley from these poisons, a battle for earthly domination threatens this stability.
0: Okay, Michael, I've got to learn a bit more about this one because this is really where the gang kind of all comes together for the first time. It doesn't even have that logo.
1: It doesn't have the studio ghibli logo up top it's not a studio ghibli film but yes this is where the dream team is formed let me take you back to the beginning so we start let's say start in 1979 where Hayao miyazaki is an industry veteran he's worked for a, a decade plus at this point he's worked on a tv series he's just directed his first feature which is castle of cagliostro which we will come to in this mini series later um, and it wasn't a success at the box office but it was very well received critically particularly in the pages of Animage magazine, which was edited at that point by a chap called Toshio Suzuki. That's a good friendly name to hear. I love hear, to hear eh?
0: that name. feel so, like I'm in safe hands.
1: <laughs> exactly, so Toshio Suzuki became a fan of Miyazaki off the back of that film. And he started running almost pretty regular features apparently on Miyazaki and Takahata and their work in the magazine and then he even brought Miyazaki into the offices and introduced him to the magazine's publishers Tokuma Shoten who were interested in moving in direction of producing feature films however all of Miyazaki's ideas at that point were original ideas not based on previous properties and the trend at the time was definitely we don't you know the the thinking at the time was we will only Get a feature film off the ground if there was some sort of supplementary material like a manga series. So Toshio Suzuki comes up with this idea of commissioning Miyazaki to m- write and draw a manga series in the pages of Animage, and that was Nashka of the Valley of the Wind, and it launched in 1982 uh, in in Anime, and it quickly became the most popular feature of the magazine, and it only took a very short amount of time before the, the the guys at the head office could see that there was value in maybe turning this property into a feature film. Once production discussions start, Miyazaki brings in his old pal Isao Takahata to serve as producer. His main contribution is that he suggests for composing the soundtrack, this experimental jazz musician called Joe Hisaishi. You yes. can see it happening now, oh, right? I love that. Because and yeah. to hear the experimental magnificent jazz, seven music in that. the background. <laughs> um, however, Tokamashoten didn't have... They weren't an animation studio, so they contracted a studio called Topcraft to come and do the main um, bulk of the animation work. So this is 1983 when pre-production starts. Let's hear a little bit from Hayao Miyazaki himself from his directorial mem- memo. For the past few years, I've put forth ideas for film projects with the following ethos. To offer a sense of liberation to present-day young people who, in this suffocating, overprotective and managed society, find their path to self-reliant independence blocked and therefore have become neurotic. Somehow that
0: sounds familiar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. A major theme of this work is the manner in which people engage with nature, the nature surrounding them and upon which they are dependent can hope exist even during this twilight era i mean that sounds like every other directorial memo that he's written he would write for every film since right inspiring the youth breaking them out of their neurotic cycle because of the fact you can go to a convenience store and buy all the food you need plus also what are we doing to the environment (laughs) it's all there from the beginning isn't it jake
0: It absolutely is, yeah. And I'll never
1: tire of hearing these directors' notes, and particularly you reading them. (laughs) (laughs) Now, production wasn't that smooth. They blew a few deadlines, um, and halfway through they put out a call for new animators in Animage magazine. And this is one of the the great stories of of the founding of Ghibli. One of the people that responded to that ad was Hideaki Anno, who years later, a decade later, would go on to uh, create Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is, for many people in the West, one of their main anime touchstones. It's now on Netflix. A whole new generation can watch it and be freaked out and weirded out by it. But the story goes that Anno just turned up, at the offices, knocked on Miyazaki's door and showed him some storyboards he'd drawn. And off the back of that, Miyazaki said, I think this guy could really nail this final sequence in the film where we have a decaying giant warrior. I'll just hand it to this guy and he'll do well. And so Hideaki Anno animated that sequence.
0: Wow. And that genuinely is one of the most effective bits
1: of the film. We're stepping, getting ahead of ourselves today, well, but at that moment. And, fa- and fans of... Anno's work will see that he, he arrives fully formed with that sequence. That sequence looks like a, an Evangelion sequence, but 12 years earlier. So the film is finished. Finally, it's released in 1984, and it's an instant hit. It sells close to a million tickets in Japan on its release, and it's very quickly held up as a pioneering and influential anime. That is felt both in animation but also in video games, as we've said before, with some of these 80s Miyazaki films. Um, you can really see the visual influence and impact of this on the final fantasy series the metal slug series um, and it often tops any poll of the greatest anime films of all time Um, it did get a release in america but it was a very controversial one it was released in 1985 distributed by Roger Corman's New World Pictures. I mean, Roger Corman, a guy who has a great reputation of releasing international films in the States, but often in very sort of bastardized forms. They cut over 20 minutes of the film and try to market it as more of a child-friendly fantasy adventure, sort of slotting in almost with what you'd see on Saturday morning TV at the time. And it's all, you know, by all accounts, an abomination It's called warriors of the wind i'd recommend looking up what the vhs cover looks like where it it's just a lineup of anonymous looking heroes on the back of an omu it looks like a dune adaptation or something (laughs) sorry (laughs) that is truly terrible that's amazing and this is the i'm going to say trauma it might be a bit strong but this is the experience that put miyazaki off the idea of, of Americans getting their hand on it, hands on his films for almost, you know, for, for a good few years. It's why when Harvey Weinstein and Miramax think about chopping and changing a little bit of Mononoke, they come down so strong. And it's why they, they, to this day, don't allow their international distributors to really do much that they don't approve of on their films, because this experience was... Seeing your film that you've worked so hard on, a property that you created and slogged away writing and drawing, changed so much for the international release. But as for *Nausicaa*, its success gives Miyazaki and Takahata that driving force to set up Studio Ghibli the following year in 1985. And actually, the manga goes on for another decade as well. So something we won't really talk about very much on this episode is that the manga did was went on until i think 1994. was he still involved in it yeah oh, he, it, it it the the publication was was spotty dependent on whether he was working on a film but he there's, there's a solid box set of the entire manga that maybe someone likes getting for my birthday someday i don't know <laughs> maybe there's a
0: christmas episode coming up <laughs> who knows
1: but the film this really is the film that kickstarts everything for for what we would it become what would, what would become ghibli but will it kickstart critical favour
0: from you michael <laughs> In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may
1: vary. You mentioned actually earlier in the podcast that this does not have the classic Steo Ghibli logo up top. It's not a Ghibli film, of course. But does this feel like a Ghibli film to you?
0: In a lot of ways, yeah. Um, in that the, there's stuff in here that we like that we can totally recognise instantly. We've got familiarity in the music the blue skies the flying scenes um uh, like the broader themes of the whole film mm-hmm. which Miyazaki even set out in advance like we've said we can copy and paste that up all the way to the wind rises even and there there's stuff here that we would see drop out maybe or stuff that they lose interest in um but i think it is recognizably a ghibli film particularly when you look at what would be the first Ghibli film. Mm -hmm. When you look at Castle in the Sky, I think these are very similar films. And it's interesting that you mentioned that the American cut of this was cut to be more kid-friendly and more accessible like that. And I think that is the route that they then saw would make Castle in the Sky more friendly to Mm -hmm. a wider group of people. But we've got other stuff here that feels really familiar That would be we wouldn't really see from Ghibli for a bit longer down the line. Like I think there is some of the dystopian visuals here and the visuals of destruction Mm -hmm. that are really evocative of *Grave of the Fireflies*. Right. Okay. um, The way that the there is a particular plane crash and explosion Mm -hmm. um, that feels like the H two destruction. Mm And then also the the way that we see the world getting destroyed in The Wind Rises as mm. well. Like across, well, the mm. entire studio's output there, we're seeing it. But uh, then we've got, like, even down to the key character. Naushka is this, this lone female hero. She's looks like she's around a teenager as well. She's setting out into the world. She's carving her own identity. Uh, there's a lot of familiar stuff here.
1: It's interesting that you, you pick upon the two Ghibli films that are very much set in a real historical period there, Grey of the Fireflies and Wind Rises. Where I see this is starting that thread through their filmography where you have this, Castle in the Sky, Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle, these big epic adventures with those big themes but also, yeah, as you say, destruction devastation a geopolitical context of the end times in a way and that starts here
0: yeah well it's interesting like we've clearly both attached our own tastes to this (laughs) film as well because as we've established on this show it is those those bigger epics that i've not gone in for as much as those smaller more i think present earthly films and uh you are as we know a humongous fan of princess Mononoke, Mm -hmm. and it feels like this is like the first sketch of that
1: yeah this is a very well-liked film in, in in the the miyazaki hive if we can call it that and for many people this would have been one of the first of his that they saw and because it's probably a little bit more adult it does have that quality for many people for me I see this as some th- as an approach that he would perfect with Princess Mononoke. It's interesting, in one of our events over the summer where we've talked with Helen McCarthy, she, her view of Miyazaki as somebody who, ha- who has written about and thought about his films for decades, she thinks that he was always striving to make something like Princess Mononoke, something with that complexity, that epic sweep, and so you can see these trial runs for it throughout his career and afterwards his approach to filmmaking changes. And that's actually been very attractive to me, that reading of his career. And it has affected, now that I watch Naushka again, all I see are things that will pop up in his other films. However, there are great the great things in this film, of course. Yeah, I think
0: this is full of absolutely wonderful sequences. I think for like the first 10 minutes of this, is, is like
1: stunning stuff the first act in general I, th- I i could imagine watching this time i bet you loved the way we're introduced to naushka these these quiet moments of her exploring finding the omu shell and going about her business yeah that must have resonated yeah with you.
0: and and just such a creative way of exploring the world as well um like carving out the eye of the omu shell mm-hmm. to put it over your head to kind of give yourself a personal greenhouse of safety mm-hmm. to be able to look at something that in a way is destroying your world but to be a pre- able to appreciate the beauty of it at mm-hmm. the same time like these little moments that throughout the film where the film pauses and it does this in the sound as well like it, it mutes itself which maybe like with this hisashi score occasionally you need to mute it a little mm-hmm. bit um And it's those moments of pause that then lead up to a a pivotal moment in the third act of the film where silence is extremely evocative because they are so used to wind filling this valley and that drops out. And it's just these these little breaths that the film takes are amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I I think maybe I preferred this to Castle in the Sky because... I think this one has rougher edges almost yeah.
1: this is one he, he was only something like 16 installments into the manga when he then had to develop the film, and Miyazaki writes in, in, in his you know, his journals that he didn't set out with the manga with a clear theme, goal you know, in mind for it. He wanted to explore this world as he went on. So having to then make a film, which is a definitive statement in two hours of intent and point and purpose, m- m- was something completely new for him as part of this project. And I think you can see that, the way that it's struggling. Even there's um, an interview with him when the film had come out where he was saying, um, I, I don't feel quite right with some of the narrative choices I made. One in particular is, we're skipping ahead perhaps, but the ending where the the... Uh, the stampede just knocks Nashka off her feet and kills her and then she comes back from the dead in a sort of joan of Arc christ-like way he completely regretted that almost on release saying i would not have done that way that way he wanted her to be able to stop the stampede with her um goodness and purity
0: well it's interesting you say that because I think like it's it's that part of the film that kind of irked me because mm. This, I think the world building is really solid here um, compared to something like Tales from Earthsea which just bounces around all over the place giving you all these stunning visuals in different locations and you, you'd think in a way that's giving you such enormous scope Like, but ultimately Earthsea occasionally feels like it's just giving you the opening titles of Game of Thrones and telling you the locations but you're not able to feel them and you're not actually be able to get a sense of how they connect as a world. And I think that's what we get with this one. The world is created so solidly because you're able to see how all the characters interact with all the parts of it. And everything has this logic um, that, like, between the the farming and the wind and the weapons and all of that, everyone has a certain role to play. And then come the end of the film, it does something that we've seen Miyazaki do in other films Mm. where like magic and like here's a reveal that we don't really know how it works but we just need to end the film mm-hmm. and we, we've we seen that in Spirited Away and in Howl's Moving Castle and it's interesting that he did it in this first film and said I regret that but would go on to do the same thing
1: again but meanwhile would then continue the manga for 12 years with new characters and incidents and and, and plots and I, I like that you draw that comparison to Tales from Earthsea. Um remember when we talked about Tales from Earthsea and it was half Earth Sea and half this adaptation of Miyazaki's manga um The Journey of Shuna. Mm. This bears apparently quite a lot of similarity to The Journey of Shuna and Helen McCarthy writes about that in her book, um, which I'd recommend checking out. But this is very much a uh, you buy that first volume of to *The Valley of the Wind*, and it has a fold-out map, and it, it, it is very much in that tradition of a Tolkien and Ursula Le Guin fantasy, high fantasy. And I just think it bears a lot of those influences a bit more on its on its sleeve yeah. than it would than he would later in his career. Well,
0: I don't think we talked about this with the making. Uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, Mm -hmm. the producer must
1: be able to draw a map of the world to be able to navigate it properly. Mm -hmm. Um, But but talking about that final sequence, it also has that incredible decaying warrior, giant warrior, mm -hmm. which is terrifying, gloopy, (laughs) gross.
0: Yeah, it's super gross. And it made me think like we're, we're tracking this, if we're tracking this to Mononoke, the opening of that with that the kind of wild, gloopy—it's uh, like a wildebeest-y type mm-hmm. thing—that uh, is proper nightmare stuff. And we're seeing this at like, like a kaiju scale here with the ancient warrior, who is properly
1: disgusting. Were you able to track a metaphor through this film at all? What does he represent? What does that warrior god represent? Whether they're they're fighting over some sort of almost weapon of mass destruction that could be harnessed maybe to save the world but will also destroy it at the same time
0: yeah i think i think there's i, I well we mentioned grave of the fireflies mm-hmm. a moment ago and i think there was a there was a line that comes later in the film when i think that they're talking about the ancient warrior um and someone says so you'll murder everything in the valley to just to stop it and i think we we do see that with grave of the fireflies we'll see that with wind rises as well that conflict of creating something that like I'm sure the ancient warrior if we saw it in its full form it would be it would be glorious but it would be terrifying as well and it will destroy everything regardless of who's setting it off and that's clearly something that they've been navigating Mm. from the very first stages of the studio but I think it is really interesting that they are not able to build it properly they don't actually have the patience to build this thing to make it work to its fullest effect, the thing that they want first is just to be able to destroy.
1: Yeah. And that is a great idea, visually, conceptually. And it, it comes at that moment of high tension where you see all of the factions squaring off in this um, completely raised landscape and then the the, the the evil princess comes up and she's like, We've got to we've got to bust him out right now but he's and then it's like, Oh he's not ready. And it's just astonishing. It, that that sequence, I think this this film has real standout sequences, standout characters. I'd, I'd I'd be interested to know what you think about something that Miyazaki rejects later in his career is violence as spectacle, action as spectacle. It's always been a conflict with him because he's also a guy who loves, and this is a film is a great example of that. He loves drawing tanks, he loves planes and explosions. Yeah. However, this is p- p- his most violent film, maybe?
0: Yeah, perhaps. There's some probably gruesome bits, like a guy who just takes a sword in the arm and just holds it there whilst holding a sword to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and like proper glorification of that. Mm-hmm. Like, look how. Metal. This
1: guy is like, that's Lord Yuper. Yeah, who, and, and it's but it, it's presented as resilience and patience, almost like the wisdom of the of the old warrior. He's very much like Sparrowhawk like, in Tales from Earthsea, isn't he?
0: But there is like he gets a very admittedly cool moment later on where he gets to jump from a plane to another <laughs> plane whilst wielding two swords <laughs> and take down a whole of guys. Like, yeah, I mean it's definitely pro fighting
1: people and winning is cool. And and Naushka is set up as this pure. Um, princess, uh, at least pure, pure of heart and pure of moral, but um, of moral fibre. But then she does murder a room of guys uh, when when they find when they when they invade the Valley of the Wind. They, mm. There is a line saying she just took out a whole room of guys. She, she's kick ass as well.
0: Yeah, admittedly she is really cool. Um, but yeah, it's a bit muddled on how it actually feels about that. Um, but but. The tanks, the planes, they look great. Mm-hmm. Like some of these flying sequences are fantastic. There's the, the way that there is when one plane is pushing another into a dangerous cloud and its wing kind of tucks underneath it and furls up the gas and it almost looks like it's surfing a wave. It's beautiful. Like and the way that they will bank corners, uh, it's like the helicopters in apocalypse now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: I loved the Metal Slug video game series growing up. as an arcade side-scrolling shoot 'em up series, and the art style was almost like an, an anime come to life or a, a ma- manga series come to life. And you can the this you can see the influence. The, the way that tanks and planes look in this film is exactly what is there. It's interesting that you talk about it being muddled, maybe on spectacle and violence and action, because I th- that's something that not to. Overly compare these films side by side and put one down to put one up, but Princess Mononoke, I think, nails that complexity. And there are some traps narratively, storytelling-wise, that Miyazaki falls into here. So there's the evil princess who has that amazing gold suit, and she's revealed to be in in a scene where we're seeing just how evil and how far gone she is. She reveals that she has a completely prosthetic arm, and that feels like something that is almost a, a younger or more immature storyteller's route through to say disabil- physical disability or physical ailment equals. And you think about Princess Mononoke, where there's no clear villain. Everyone is almost equally implicated in this in this horrible situation. In Naushka, there are clear baddies and goodies. And that evil princess, 30 years later, in Mad Max Fury Road, would be Furiosa, where a character could be good and subvert those those tropes. And Miyazaki is a bit is a bit almost enslaved to those tropes, I think, here. Whereas from Porco Rosso onwards, I think he'd be able to find a way to display the spectacle of dogfighting or in Princess Monoki show Ashitaka chopping someone's arm off with an arrow but, and it's simultaneously awesome and awful. Mm. It's not quite there yet. I don't no. want to seem like I'm criticising this film because I think there's so much in there and it is the ur er text for everything we will see afterwards. But you can tell that he's somebody who developed and grew with every film he'd make. Speaking of developing and growing, I just want
0: to quickly talk about Joe Hisashi's oh, score here. yeah, yeah. Um, Because when the score first kicks in at the start... and we're Sorry, there is a beautiful title card. This mm. film is maybe up there with the best title card. Do you mean the Bayer Tapestry yeah, sequence? It's oh, yeah. beautiful. And you've got this Hesatius score over that and it's it's like this really lush piano ballad and I thought, oh, that's really interesting that he's starting with this classical style with this film, and then they let him off the leash (laughs) with Castle in the Sky. No, like, Castle in the Sky, he is subdued. Like, Castle in the Sky is basically like Brian Eno ambient sounds (laughs) compared to this. Uh, This is a beast. Um, It's like Giorgio Moroder at points. It's absolutely crazy. But... As you said they hired him cuz at the time he was an experimental jazz musician and you can totally see that here whereas we we go 25 years in the future or whatever and he's making these wonderful like ornate grand or classical Kestrel scores, scores yeah. and uh like and he started with this and this this score is
1: nuts yeah. Um I think this score I I know you haven't you, you're recently playing Zelda Breath of the Wild I know but your experience with Japanese RPGs is quite it's quite little um, Next to Zero Next to Zero I think this score sets the tone for the, the, the sound of Japanese RPG battle music whenever you go into a battle in Final Fantasy that that driving synth line is, is, is there it's present and it's, it's he's somebody who, who just grow and, and, sh- and change you can't imagine the guy who wrote that score being the guy who did the t- uh, Tale of the Princess Kaguya score 30 years later.
0: Mad. (laughs) Utterly mad. Um, Yeah, I think that, in a way, that is a crazier transformation than anyone else's.
1: But that's the thing. Everybody here is in the nascent form. And not to (laughs) put too hard a point on it, really, almost looking at this, it's almost like getting the giant warrior out too early, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's it's there. It's powerful. It's awe-inspiring. still did some damage. still did some damage, but... I think, put them back in the oven for a bit longer and some some, some real magic happens. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I think maybe it's time uh, to do my favourite part of the show where I've got to force you to rank this amongst all the other Ghibli films. Uh, let's move on to the leaderboard. Okay, so... Uh, we are not going to do this on every episode where I'll recap everything, but uh, if people want to follow both Michael and I on the site Letterboxd, we will be updating our lists on there. Um, but to give everyone a quick recap of where it stands on Michael's leaderboard at the moment, uh, at the bottom, it's Tales from Earthsea in number 18 and quickly ascending. Uh, it's the Cat Returns, Arietti, Howl's Moving Castle, When Marnie Was There, Pompoco Only Yesterday, Ponyo, Castle in the Sky, Princess Kaguya, Spirited Away, Porco Rosso, The Wind Rises, Kiki's Delivery Service, Princess Mononoke, Grave of the Fireflies, My Neighbor Totoro, and Number One, Whisper of the Heart.
1: Michael, where is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind going to sit? It's, it's very, once once we lay out the films like that in a ranked list from 18 to 1, it's really easy to forget that I, all all the way through this, I talk about it, I talk about this list, this leaderboard in it's almost like Strata and the Totoro tier, the God tier, whatever we call them. This one for me is not up top, for, in, in the top tier. This is, I think that I would go to Princess Mononoke time and again to get what, now is trying to give me as well. Um, I would put this, would you? Um, I would put this in 12th position. And I don't want that to sound controversial. That is still middle tier. So that is below Ponyo and above only, only yesterday. yesterday. Because I think that Ponyo, Castle in the Sky, have higher peaks for me. They have moments of absolute transcendent beauty. They have such great ideas. Ponyo is a gorgeous film. And Naushka has its moments, but I see it as a trial run for greatness. Wow.
0: Yeah, but, I think that is absolutely fair. Uh, I mean, it's not fair that Only Yesterday is underneath it. Um, interesting
1: about that placement as we go further. Where would this come for you, Jake?
0: Um, I, I said that I, I think this is a more interesting film than Castle in the Sky for me. Um, but I would agree. I think there are like the bits like the, the monster, the robot monster unfurling his arm as a single moment is better than any single moment in Naushka. Mm-hmm. But overall, I enjoyed Naushka, I think, more than I did Cast in the Sky. Not as much as Pompoco. So I would have to slot it just between those two, which for me puts it in 11th place. Okay, so pretty similar, really.
1: Yeah. But do you think this is better than Tales from Earthsea?
0: Yes, I do think it's better than Tales from Earthy. I'll have to put that out there, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, we hope you've enjoyed your time in the Ghibli's Tech with us this week. On our next episode, we're going back to Goro Miyazaki, checking in with him with his second feature from Up on Poppy Hill. Any any excitement for that one, Jake?
0: Well, we all know how much he liked his last film. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm very happy to see what Goro's up to next. Um, this one looks a lot more uh, kind of This one looks like much smaller fare and Mm -hmm. it looks like he's kind of crossing over from one end of Ghibli to the other. We talk about these big epics and we talk about these small scale present stories. And uh, I'm curious to see what a director
1: will do when he moves between the two of them. Yeah, it's stylistic whiplash, isn't Mm -hmm. it? We'll have to see what you make of it. Until then, you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake Cunningham. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael J. Leader. Or you can just let us know what you think of the show at Ghibliotech.
0: Bibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through the credits. We like to give our listeners a little post-credits trivia nugget. So much has been made about how Hayao Miyazaki really doesn't like video games, but, well, Naushka has the unique privilege of having not one, not two, but three video games adapted from it. Two were for the NEC PC systems, and one was for Microsoft's MSX home computer. One was a side-scrolling shoot-em-up type thing, another one was an adventure game. Compared to the film, the early 80s pixel graphics have not aged well at all. But if you're curious, there's plenty of gameplay footage on YouTube. Check them out. Hold up.